3: Hello and welcome to the Rule of Law podcast with Matrix Chambers and Prospect magazine. Well, it's been a pretty momentous few weeks since our last broadcast. Just days after we chatted to Professor Melissa Murray about the judicial threat to abortion rights, the United States Supreme Court handed down its widely trailed judgment overturning Rowan Wade. This quite extraordinary reversal of precedent with profound impact for millions of women was itself followed by further judgments of the conservative majority, restricting federal powers to combat climate change, and curbing limits to gun control, all measures taken by the Supreme Court in the face of public opinion supporting the contrary views. And one theme to which we'll no doubt return in future episodes is how can courts, when patently motivated by politics, command public respect? And importantly, what are the consequences for the rule of law And democracy when they don't. But it's the home front in this episode, which we're recording after Boris Johnson's resignation and in the hours before the result of the first ballot of Conservative MPs takes place to replace him. And what we want to do is dissect the past three years of government under Boris Johnson from the rule of law perspective. How has it fared? What have been the points of concern? And what should the new leader do to restore any damage done? And just by way of spoiler alert, and I can't speak for my colleagues, but my own view is that from a domestic perspective, no prime minister in modern times has come anywhere close to Johnson as a danger to the rule of law and to our constitutional norms. And on the international front, he is surpassed only by Tony Blair, whose flouting of international law over the Iraq conflict at least had the virtue of pretending it was lawful rather than the brazen Johnsonian revelling in breach. So we'll try and unpack some of that in this episode with perhaps uh, some contributions from my colleagues who may seek to persuade me that I'm being too harsh. So let me introduce them. I'm joined, as always, by Helen Matfield and Murray Hunt, and today we are joined, I'm delighted to say, by Adam Wagner of Doughty Street Chambers, who many will know is an expert not just on all things human rights, but has particular expertise on the United Kingdom's response to the pandemic. And uh, later this year, Adam's book, Emergency State, will be published by Penguin, examining how, from a rule of law perspective, the country's response to COVID measures up. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to start, if I may, in a kind of a chronological shape. I'm going to try and get your views on Johnson's domestic record from a human rights rule of law Perspective starting if we can almost remember it way back, so pre the general election, Johnson takes over from Boris Johnson, Theresa May, even. I beg your pardon, I told you it was a long time ago. <laughs> Theresa May, he faces a series of defeats in parliament and then decides to prorogue it. Now, it is a long time ago, but it was to many and remains a deeply troubling constitutional step. Murray, can you, can you put it in the constitutional context
2: for us? It does seem an awfully long time ago, Richard, doesn't it? So much water under the bridge since then. It was an extraordinary exercise of executive power to get Parliament out of the way. And the Supreme Court's historic judgment was a really good example of the courts, the highest courts in the land coming to the assistance of democracy and actually intervening in order to to preserve the rights of parliament to continue to sit. Uh, And I think that was one of the the features of the Supreme Court's judgment that I think is is often underappreciated is that it's a really good example uh, of the judicial role in supporting and upholding democracy and the democratic branch. Uh, And that's what it did in a a quite courageous judgment. Um, And rightly, in my view, said that the executive can't use the prerogative power simply to get a, a, an inconvenient legislature uh, out of the way. Principles we thought were established in the 17th century, uh, reiterated by the Supreme Court in a very, very important judgment, which I think set the tone then for many things which have happened since.
3: I mean, Helen, how significant was was this as a threat, the Johnsonian move to parague Parliament? Uh, I mean, are we are we overblowing it by talking it as a kind of um, a, a, a kind of constitutional coup or not?
1: No, I don't think you are. I think it's it was the most shocking example of something that's been done in a lot of lower key ways in the time that's followed, which is to claim to be supporting parliamentary sovereignty while actually going all guns blazing to have untrammeled executive power. I think we're living in a very, very illiberal democracy. And did the
3: Supreme Court actually face a choice? I mean, a real choice for, from a legal perspective here, other than to effectively defend the rights of parliament to act as parliament
0: yeah i think they did i mean the fact that divisional court um, a powerful divisional court ruled the other way goes to show that there was there was a serious argument to be had i mean the biggest surprise i thought about that that judgment was the fact it was 11 nil in in uh, against the government that was the extraordinary most extraordinary part that you'd expect where there's been a strong divisional court saying that this isn't even something that is within the competence of, of the courts that the supreme court at least a couple of members of the Supreme Court would back them up, and and I, you know, I think there's a, I, I agree with Murray that there was what that what it was really was about was the Supreme Court putting its foot down and saying, you know, that, that there are some lines that can't be crossed, and one of them is shutting down Parliament. What, what where I would, I think, disagree with Murray is I don't I don't know if it I don't think it did set the tone for what followed because I think in it you might rather see it as a a high watermark for the Supreme Court and for the, I mean, the, the, certainly for the Lady Hale court, um, which hasn't really been matched since. And, and in fact, as we'll talk about later, what, what then happened during the COVID years was was the government, I mean, parliament basically almost prorogued itself. Well, I can ask it. you a little bit
3: about, about that now, because um, following the decision, I mean, it, you were surprised it was unanimous. In a sense, I, I wasn't, I mean, I thought, what would it do to the Supreme Court on a point of that importance, constitutional importance, if it was shown to be split on an issue like that? But, but there, there we go. We all take our, di- we all take our kind of different takes, and none of us, none of us know what was going on behind um, the scenes. But it followed a clear threat to the Supreme Court and indeed the judiciary, which is um, a tone that's remained in the government. I mean, have, have governments always kind of attack the judges when they don't like? Decisions. Is there anything qualitatively
1: different here, Helen? I, I, I don't. I don't think it is a, a sort of of 'twas ever thus' situation. I think it started actually under John Reid and David Blunkett. I think they were the people who started not saying we're disappointed by this judgment and are reviewing our policy in the light of it, but we think this is a bad judgment. The judges shouldn't have been involved. And I thought then it was a very dangerous game. And I think it's an even more dangerous game now. But as adam said about parliament proroguing itself my perception is that um, judges having been told they were overreaching themselves have politely put themselves in a box and i think they're almost trying to demonstrate how good um, and deferential they are to avoid any further hard threats to their power and i think that chilling effect is very worrying myself
0: yeah i, I think i think that there's that there's an analogy perhaps to what the european court of human rights um, how the european court of human rights responded to the, um, the, 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 the sort of, I guess, about a decade ago now, the all the talk of subsidiarity and and the controversial judgments in Abu Ghudar and the Prisoner of vote cases, that it seemed to, it seemed to diminish itself to avoid getting into a fundamental battle with the British government, and and I think the Supreme Court seems to, I think Lord Reed has, has kind of has actually said it, expressed it. I think it was in a in a talk in Oxford, wasn't it? But I think it was a it was a Magdalen. That he said he said that some of the things they are saying in judgments are aimed at showing the government that they are you know that they, that they are sensible or rational or, you know not stepping on into politics so i think there's a very interesting
3: well it's not even chatter uh, sort of in the kind of illegal circles anymore i mean the economist ran an editorial recently about has the supreme court been cowed murray i mean you run the bingham rule of law center Lord Bingham had some pretty clear views about uh, the roles of courts and separation from the executive. Are, are, Are you concerned that there might be some cowing going on as opposed to perhaps more conservative, legally conservative judges in the ascendancy, which might be thought to be a more legitimate explanation for some judgments rather than cowing? Should we be worried? Just lost Murray on the line to be back in. So Helen, I'm going to put that one straight back over to you.
1: I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think the senior judiciary are, in fact, instinctively more conservative in a small c legal sense. But also, as Adam says, I think subconsciously, at least they may be trying to stave off what I think is wholly unwarranted criticism of the way in which they perform their judicial role.
3: Well, those are the opening days of government under uh, Boris Johnson. Let's just turn now to Covid which was obviously uh, something we there were lots of things we could anticipate about Boris Johnson most of which have turned out to be true but one thing that nobody anticipated was the pandemic pandemic coming we we started this podcast in, in in its very earliest days and we started it partly to kind of examine the legality of the legislation that the government was bringing in Helen you may remember as Will Murray when his computer reboots and he rejoins us that in our very earliest discussion we kind of took the view that we should cut the government a bit of slack about the legal basis of the regulations because of the I think all of our fear at that stage that there was about to be mass death Adam were we we right to do so as history proved us right that the government was going to come in and make sure everything was in good legal order
0: well, I remember listening to that podcast, um, and I remember agreeing with it at the time um, because I felt the same. That in those first few weeks, the you know um, the, the the level of threat was so high, um, and the difficulty of making decisions, you know, snap decisions was was also high, that you had to cut not just our government but all governments some slack. You know, I, this is something which hasn't happened in in living memory a, a a virus of this kind a pandemic of this kind we've had sars and ebola and those sorts of viruses but they're all easier much easier to contain uh, swine flu not as not as deadly um than covid covid was a once in a you know a century pandemic hopefully um and not seen s- that that sort of level of threat has not been seen since the spanish flu 100 years ago so we had to dust off a lot of um institutional structures that we hadn't used for a long time um I, having said all that i think that what you can excuse in those first few weeks is much more difficult to excuse two years into the pandemic and you've got to remember that the the emergency procedure under the public health act the public health control of disease Act, 1984 was used throughout um the period of restrictions so there was a period that the state the period that i look at in in my book is 700 and something odd days um, between the 14th of February, 2020 and the 22nd of March, 2022, which is when there was formerly a state of emergency and the government was using very, very regularly, sometimes every every day, the emergency procedure under the Public Health Act, which, which pr- allows it to um, bring regulations into force, which don't have to be seen by parliament, let alone voted on um, for another four weeks. And that process, that that emergency procedure, was used for every single set of regulations. And I think only four sets of regulations were voted on before they came into a force. And all of those were the day before they came into the force. Unlike um, regulations under the made under the um, Civil Contingencies Act, you, Parliament can't amend public health act regulations. So in reality, all that were, all that happened when there was when there were prior votes, which was four out of over a hundred, the um, parliament wasn't actually doing anything. It was just debating um, aridly whether there should or shouldn't be regulations, and nobody was going to vote against, you know, seriously vote against the regulations as such, um, rather than amending. So I think what we what we had was over two years of 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 rule by executive decree and i don't think that was justified um throughout i think it probably was justified for the first few weeks
3: and this again i mean the subject matter of the regulations had profound impacts upon kind of fundamental rights this isn't just you know tinkering around the periphery of public health
0: no more so than any regulation since the second world war um and in fact the second world war there was this you know relatively analogous under the defense regulations and there's lots, lots to be said about the comparisons. But I think the other thing that I found really interesting and important from a rule of law perspective about this period where I looked into it is that when the Public Health Act was amended in 2008 to, to allow for these much more extensive powers, there was no sense at all in the, in the parliamentary debates or the government's proposals that, that this could lead to the entire population being locked in their homes for, for months at a time. That, that idea, the idea of lockdowns, was. I mean, that there had never been a lockdown of that kind in 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 the world before. You know, by 2008, I think the first was in 2009, and even by 2020, I think there had been three, and the maximum had been three days. So th- there was nothing like it. Never really been considered that this emergency procedure could be used in such a fundamental way to restrict rights without parliamentary oversight so and i think that was a mistake and then let's say the subtitle
3: uh, of your new book is the freedoms we lost in the pandemic and how to get them back clearly there's a concern that even though we've moved out of the pandemic the position hasn't uh, returned to the default one (laughs)
0: No, I, I think there's, there's a number. I mean, this happened after the Second World War as well, as in uh, that the final emergency regulations weren't revoked until the mid 1960s. And, and I think that the Public Health Act, well, I think there's, there's two elements that the Public Health Act itself will be used again and again because the precedent's been now set that if there's another pandemic of this kind, there will be, or just another COVID variant, there will, will be in the same cycle. And I think the other issue, which is a wider issue, which maybe um, the others can comment on, is that this, that the way the COVID regulations were used, and were implemented, and were were done by executive decree, reflects a trend that's been developing for a long time over the use of, you know, uh, uh, wide regulate wide regulation making powers, Henry VIII powers, those sorts of things, which makes the government the overbalances the um the balance of powers towards the government and the executive and you know put alongside the the points that we've already made about parliament you know uh, being undermined but also the courts being cowed you do wonder where the where the balance is going to come or we're we just going to be stuck with this very very powerful executive with very little scrutiny
3: i mean that always appears to me to be one of a number of the fallacies in sort of the arguments That Richard Eakins and others advance about judicial overreach, which is based on this myth that the law, (laughs) all the laws of the the country are ones that have been kind of carefully scrutinized by Parliament, read over time and time again by MPs before they vote on it, as opposed to this whole network of laws that are put in place with really zero parliamentary regard or or scrutiny. Um, Helen?
1: Yes, it's a worrying pattern. In terms of the Henry VIII clauses, some of the enabling powers that we now see in legislation, like the UK Internal Markets Act and the Northern Ireland Bill, are really so broad, they're better described as Charles I clauses, because they give the executive power to do really anything it wants. And then there's the executive simply refusing to engage with the norms of parliamentary scrutiny. For example, I I know we're coming back to this, but the Bill of Rights Bill claims to be seeking to re-empower Parliament at the the expense of the judiciary, but it's being passed without any parliamentary pre-scrutiny. And last week, the Secretary of State for Justice decided he wasn't going to come to a pre-arranged, long pre-arranged select committee hearing by the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights to scrutinise the bill. And I also think that it's Coming back to COVID regulations, that not all parliaments, parliamentarians rather, have really understood the difference between binding regulations and guidance.
3: So that's the those are that's the the regulatory framework. Those were the rules that were put in place. Let's move a little bit along the timeline to um, how those rules were complied with uh, and uh, Partygate. Now, obviously an important aspect of the rule of law might be thought to be investigation of breaches of the law and securing justice and accountability when that happens. I'm gonna here's your start of ten. Can anybody explain to me why, on the face of the Sue Gray report and everything else in the public domain, the Prime Minister only received one fine? Adam, I think you're currently involved in a case. I don't know that makes it difficult for you to to give an answer to that.
0: Well, I can I could give the answer that um is in the the grounds um submitted by the good law project which is the case I'm acting in which you can get online um just to explain that the issue in that case the issue I mean it's difficult to know because the um the, the, the mets refused to um disclose its reasoning um uh, in the pre-action process but also publicly but it seems like the prime minister attended a number of illegal gatherings and and under the regulations gatherings themselves have to have a reasonable excuse they can't it's not individual just individuals the gathering themselves do um he attended he seems to have attended a number of illegal gatherings that other people were given fixed penalty notices for but somehow attended them lawfully um and that's the you know i mean that seems to be the <laughs> the justification maybe they i think i think the, the the Met probably I I my guess is what they decided was that because they were leaving parties the Prime Minister could could go along as part of his duties to a leaving party and give a speech and pour some drinks and encourage people but that would be part of his work duties in a way which um which for those attending it wouldn't be even even I mean even saying it sounds ridiculous but it is I think that's where they got to and they and they decided they they didn't want to take the risk. Uh, which they thought was a risk of of um, giving him an FPM. But well, on a
3: similar theme, and perhaps with reflecting similar troubling themes, I think you you've been involved in another case with the Good Law Project uh, about the police policy in respect of investigation and fines for high profile individuals. I, I suspect because until you'd mentioned that, I'm afraid I hadn't heard of it. I suspect many people haven't. What what was the case?
0: So, so that was uh the, the when the Met just said they wouldn't investigate Partygate initially, and they said we're going to leave it to Simon Case, the um the the Cabinet Secretary who you will remember then was found to have hosted his yeah. own party. They the Good Law Project sued them and said, first of all, we think you're operating a secret policy because they'd intimated that there was a policy um for non-retrospective enforcement of the regulations, um, and they said it a few times actually. They said it when um, Matt Hancock was caught having an affair and and it was thought that he and I, th- I think he probably did breach the the COVID regulations um with various gatherings at the time so it's during lockdown they said oh we don't invest we don't generally investigate retrospective breaches of the COVID regulations um, and Durham police said the same about Dominic Cummings but it wasn't clear that there was a policy but one thing that came up in in the reclaim these streets case in the um the, the the Sarah Everard vigil case was in another policy that was referenced a what they described as a policy relating to high profile people and and it turned out there was a policy the and a quite detailed policy and, and and not necessarily a bad policy from a rule of law perspective which basically said we're not practically able to give to to you know give fixed penalty notices out for people reporting Ext- retrospective breaches you know their neighbor had a party three months ago that sort of thing in the middle of the pandemic it's not practical to be doing that to be made investigating however there will in certain limited circumstances there will be an investigation and they are affected. they are basically rule of law circumstances where there's a flagrant breach of the rules allegedly and the individual should have known or, or should or should or did know the rules and to not investigate would undermine the the legitimacy of the regulations themselves.
3: So is this really is this so, what, is this as we're saying it? I'm thinking uh, this is sounding like a policy applied to high profile individuals that is not applied to you and me and members of the public. Or am I am I getting the wrong right this? That's, that's correct. How does that work? It,
1: that's
0: what. Well, it was, uh, that that's what. Sorry, Helen.
1: I'm not sure that is quite so extraordinary, Richard. The secret policy issue is clearly a problem, but I'm not entirely unsympathetic to the idea of different prosecutorial policies for public figures, because when you're deciding whether to prosecute, one element of that is whether it's in the public interest, and I do think there's a particular public interest in holding those who promulgate laws to account if they breach them, and and it might not be quite so important to investigate what are otherwise minor breaches, which happened some time ago, if it's someone else, just a, a member of the public.
3: So that was um, Partygate. And one aspect of Partygate, I think, that aggravated people as much as the breaking of the rules, I mean, the wholesale breaking of the rules in Downing Street, was, was, was the lie or the lies about the role that Boris Johnson played in it and what he knew and when. And obviously, lying and lack of integrity has been such a hallmark of his premiership that it's caused his downfall, as we, we now know. I want to ask a question. It just sounds—it sounds almost a bit too trite to ask, but I think it is an important one to to articulate out loud. Murray, perhaps I can just st- start with you. Which is the role of truth in our lead- leaders telling tr- the truth and not overtly dissembling? I mean, is the hat—is there a relationship between that and the rule of law? And if so, why?
2: There very much is, I think. Um... Trust in our institutions is um, absolutely crucial to um, to upholding the rule of law because so many of those institutions have a a vital role in upholding basic ideas of legality. And if that trust is constantly eroded and undermined in the way that it is, if we live in a culture um, where we can't be sure what we're being told is true, then the faith in those crucial institutions which uphold the rule of law is ultimately severely damaged. And I think in the pandemic, it became clear Um, how paradoxical that is, because the government actually was incredibly dependent on faith in our public institutions, including all our legal institutions and the courts, in order to enforce these unprecedented interventions on people's personal lives. Uh, So it wasn't really in the government's interest to be introducing COVID regulations, which are as extensive as they were, at the same time as continuing to undermine trust in our institutions. And what we were just discussing that it's absurd, really, that the police were put in this situation um, of having to put out policies uh, because they were were being left with these uh, unpoliceable regulations um, by the way in which the regulations were made, the lack of scrutiny that they were given, uh, everything being handed over to to them for decisions to be made by them at an enforcement level. Um, And at the same time, behavior being modeled at the top, which undermined that trust which was necessary for the pandemic.
3: I'm going to move on along the timeline. I'm going to just try and get your views on, on legislation under the Johnson um, governments. I mean, there have been lots of pieces of actual and still proposed legislation that have raised really serious concerns. I mean, to take one example, limits on public protests under the Police Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act of this year. We we'll could probably do a podcast on each one of the troubling uh, bits of legislation, but for, for these purposes, let's just focus on the British Bill of Rights that Dominic Raab is trying to steer through Parliament at the moment, which is the bill that seeks to repeal the Human Rights Act. And Mr. Raab tells us that we should be welcoming it, welcoming the bill as entrenching and developing fundamental human rights. Helen, is he is he right? <laughs>
1: No, that's not going to be the effect of the Bill of Rights, and I actually don't think it's intended to be. It's really hard to know where to begin with how very bad this bill is. There are all sorts of specific bad bits, um, but the real problem is the structure of the thing. It's two elements, really. by, by, By trying to remove the requirement to interpret law compatibly with the Convention, this bill really removes any structural effect of the Convention rights as between private individuals in terms of the way the law should be interpreted. But more worryingly, I think, is that it will operate in effect to prevent domestic judges from giving effect to the Convention or holding public authorities um, to the standards in it um, at all. For example, the Bill says that a measure which is in primary legislation should be presumed to be compatible with the Convention, really strong presumption, even if it obviously isn't. Um, The judges are required to take into account preparatory materials from the 1950s but not the case law of the European Court of Human Rights now even though the people who who designed the convention in the 50s clearly did realise that it would apply to changing social conditions they were setting out a set of standards to apply for the future not rules which would keep us stuck in the 1950s. And then finally judges are told that they can't interpret convention rights in a way that would require public authorities to do public to do positive things. So if, for example, you have an issue where um, victims of domestic violence are not being treated properly, they're not getting the support they need to prevent them being victims of domestic violence, then um, the judges won't be able to say that because that would imply that some positive steps should have been taken by a public authority which haven't been taken, and it would, for example, definitely mean a different result in the Warboys case um, about parole hearings. And taking into account victims' rights there, and there are other ways in which I think that the, the the bill the bill is requiring judges to breach our international legal obligations, and so I think the effect of this is going to be a lot more successful challenges to the UK in the European Court of Human Rights, and then I fear more of the narrative, the story that we're being dictated to by foreign judges. We should leave the whole thing.
2: Murray, what are your concerns about the bill? I agree with Helen that it's a a pretty calamitous piece of legislation. I think it doesn't really accept the basic concept of uh, of human rights. It's it's based on a very libertarian idea of what rights are fundamental. And it is deliberately really severing commitment to the European Convention at the same time as claiming to remain committed to the European Convention on Human Rights, which is really extremely damaging for the whole European Convention system. Uh, It's the approach that Russia took before it was excluded for over a number of years, maintaining that it was still part of the Convention system, pretending to be committed to it, yet doing all sorts of things to defy judgments of the court uh, and to undermine the authority of the court. And this bill is a collection of a variety of ways in which the European Court of Human Rights is really being held in contempt by the government, ranging from the provision that says that interim measures will have no binding effect in domestic law, through encouraging Parliament to push back against judgments of the European Court of Human Rights that the government doesn't like through a whole variety of different ways of redefining convention rights, positive obligations being taken away, etc. Which will undoubtedly lead to violations being found against the UK in Strasbourg. Adam,
3: you don't have to agree just just because Helena Murray do. Uh, <laughs> you going to step up and defend disagree. this? Uh, defend the bill as a as a, no. a great instrument no. for human rights?
0: I th- I think this has been long long in the in the oven um this bill um it reflects very much the approach taken by Chris Grayling when he put out in 2014 as part of the party, the election manifesto it was it was a sort of in the build up to the 2015 election so under the coalition government under for the Tory party and and the approach if you read that proposal it it more or less reflects what's in this bill now which is essentially saying, you know, we're not going to leave the European Conventional Human Rights yet, but we are going to do some things which are going to put the cat amongst the pigeons. And we're going to see how the court reacts. And, and a lot of the bill can be read as effectively a, a, a provocation it's it's not it's not a bill which is trying to improve the Human Rights Act. It's a bill which is attempting to pre- precipitate the UK leaving the European Convention on Human Rights by creating an, an environment where the court is constantly having to strike down UK bits of UK legislation or UK um, effectively or, or or going against the judgments of our court or going against the government as it sees so. I think that, that is really what this is all about, is about what, what the, the, the more right-wing side of the Tories is, are calling Brexit, you know, the, the end of Brexit, or the completion of Brexit, They're leaving the European court.
3: Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I, I agree that the structure is by design to put us into a phase of permanent conflict with the Strasbourg court, which plays to a given agenda. I think it also is about the kind of another theme that, of Johnson's government, which is the kind of dividing rather than uniting. So, it, you know, the kind of the themes in which it tends to go strong, for example, um, you know, kind of asylum cases, foreign prisoners, military operations overseas. It's all about kind of it's all about division points. And there's also, I mean, just it feeds in, doesn't it, to what we've just been already talking about, which is executive power grab at the expense of courts, at the expense of parliament and, you Know, really clearly for example here about the restriction on positive obligations under human rights instruments at the expense of the, the, the citizens and residents of this country I mean it's hard to think if they wanted to really undermine human rights whilst pretending to do otherwise they could have produced anything um, worse
2: and Richard it does that to go back to Helen's earlier point supposedly in the name of Parliament mm. it's really insulating the executive from accountability uh, in relation to human rights but it's all doing so supposedly in the name of parliamentary democracy parliamentary sovereignty um, whereas actually it's the executive that's going to benefit from this it's not really parliament there's nothing in this bill which strengthens parliament's role in relation to human rights whatsoever
3: yeah i mean you're right i mean in terms of in reminding us that of course this was all subject to careful review of the government's request by a committee led by former court of appeal judge Lord justice gross uh who who effectively endorsed the utility and importance of the Human rights Act. But anyway, there we are. let's move let's move on uh, and let's move to the final area, which is the Johnson government and international law. So uh, it it achieved a first, I think the government um by introducing legislation in the form of the internal markets bill that expressly provided for a power to breach uh, international legal obligations. That seems to start at a trend. We then had the Nationality and Borders Act of this year, which seem is in part is at least irreconcilable with the Refugee Convention. Uh, we've now got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And Murray, as you've mentioned, aspects of the Bill of Rights that again put us in breach of international law obligations. Is this just a kind of a nerdy point of interest to international lawyers? Or is there a kind of a radical departure from what governments have done in the past? Is there a rule of law concern? Murray? Very much a rule
2: of law concern. One of um, Tom Bingham's principles was that the state must respect its international legal obligations. That's a fundamental principle of the rule of law. Uh, And what we've been seeing in those pieces of legislation that you've um, summarised, Richard, is really a contempt for international law. Um, And in some parts of the government, an approach quite manifestly taking the view that international law isn't really law. And reverting to a a very pre-modern view um, that international law doesn't really have to be regarded as binding or taken very seriously by the UK. Completely in contradiction of the UK's tradition, which has always been to be seen to be as a world leader in upholding a rules-based international order. If you read the Richard Eakins piece um, on the Rwanda judgment, the interim measures from the Strasbourg court, you'll see a very clear uh, expression of this view. Um, that, that those interim measures ordered by the Strasbourg courts can simply be ignored by our government and by the court because they're not legally binding. Simply, it's not a manifestation of law.
3: I, I mean, look, I, I, you know, international law is what I do. Uh, and for me, I find I've just found this the most depressing period imaginable because, you know, you kind of grow up seeing the advantages that international law bring you grow up in a period in which it would have just been utterly I can't stress this enough utterly unthinkable that a British government of any political persuasion would have brazenly proclaimed that they were going to break international law just unthinkable now am I am I am I just kind of over am I overdoing it
0: I think there's I think the, the question of whether people care is is sometimes not as important <laughs> as it might be. I, I, I think that one one way of looking at it is that the prorogation case put didn't you know people might not have really understood, but the institutions um, of the UK um, certainly did understand and they saw it as a warning. Um, and I think that the there's a certain ball was set rolling. You can't do that without cost um and i think there's certain balls set rolling and and i think that the the exposure of johnson um for this sort of you know the party gates the sort of low level corruption the the lies that sort of thing that that, that there was there was an there was a there was a sense after a prorogation that those things were going to that this was what was going to happen and this needed to be understood and 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 sorted out um i think just going back to the international law point um it's it's so interesting that boris you know his big hero is churchill um but because i think churchill demonstrate churchill's support for the european convention for the united nations for the for the post-war order his sort of full-throated we need to deal with this with the future of the world on a on an international values level as well as everything else if we're gonna prevent this happening again this sort of utter destruction we're going to have to create institutions and support them and understand them and you know create international law as an idea to to bind people to their to these international values i think it shows that you need you can't just have good ideas you need proponents you need people to persuade and express themselves which churchill was you know that was his i want one of his great talents was being able to persuade and to um and to speak and to talk about you know to 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 sell things to the public so i think that there is one thing that we need in the next few years as we get into this dang- more and more dangerous situation is a really strong case for international rules based system And we can't, we can no longer assume, as I think we probably did in the latter part of the 21st century, or the 20th century, that people still are still around in power who were there at the time. I think that's what's changed. That's the danger. So I think that's what's going to be needed. And public opinion will become really important.
3: I mean, particularly at a time in which, you know, it's hard to think of a time there's been a greater need for international law frameworks and compliance with them, whether you judge by reference to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, why you, you look at the challenges that lie ahead with climate change. I mean it's staggering. Anyway, I we could do a whole series of podcasts on it, but we're gonna need to we're gonna need to wrap up and I want to do that, if I may, by just kind of stepping back. And Adam, I'm gonna start with you because you've done so much to kind of publicize and popularize human rights in the work that you've been doing, but do do people really care anymore about any of this? I mean, obviously, you know, we're all kind of human rights lawyers. We we obviously do, the people, no doubt our friends do, people who read The Guardian do, certainly people who read Prospect do. But, you know, I mean, going back to prorogation, which no one really talks about that, that isn't what brought down a prime minister trying to override parliament. People did it because, you know, we had to comply with the rules and he didn't in respect of COVID, which was, of course, important, or what he knew or didn't know about Pincher. But it's not, it's not, It's not as long as people were, were, were up in arms about constitutional breaches, I mean, do, fundamentally,
0: does any, do people actually really care? I mean, your guess is good as mine. That's the problem for for law, law, Lawyers are not the ones to make the case, and I don't think they ever have been. I mean, it has to be politicians. Um, I mean, maybe politicians who have been lawyers, um, you know, p- possibly, but it has to be politicians. It has to be people in society who can speak eloquently and personally about these kind of issues. You know, th- th- just for, to give a, a, a narrow example, the Mo Farah coming out and talking about he was how he was a trafficked as a child. Like, you can talk about tra- the importance of trafficking, anti-trafficking laws and modern slavery, you know, forever as a lawyer and not have a fraction of the impact that you know Mo Farah making that documentary about his own personal story will have on the public consciousness and understanding and I think th- those there's a certain sort of magic of that, that that we can't create it has to come from a movement.
1: Yeah I agree I, mean, I think it's a very serious thing brazenly to legislate to breach our international obligations it's, it's different claiming to do it um, in a way that might or might not convince you Richard but is at least um, intended to be genuine. And I think by doing that, we're being placed on a real collision course with the rest of the international community, or at least the rest of the liberal democratic international community. And it gives great cover to authoritarian democracies, which don't intend to comply with the rule of law. And as you say, Richard, just when the big problems are almost incapable of being solved on a purely national level. So I agree with Adam that finding stories, real narratives about why human rights and international operation matters really important and i guess the story is how or well, the question is how do we actually articulate that and how do we get it across
3: the 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 anti human rights narrative has been so much more successful i mean in part because it's one that's just been taken up by certain tabloids but it's been so much more successful bizarrely than the pro human rights message murray is there is there anything any grounds for optimism as we look forward?
2: I'm going to be drafted in as the, the stupid optimist. I, I, I am actually optimist. I think there is evidence that people do care. The Constitution Units Democracy After Brexit project has run some citizens' assemblies, which are producing some really interesting findings about the importance of um, trust in politicians, the importance of truth-telling, the importance of accountability in independent institutions. And that's a pretty robust citizens' assembly process that they're, they're running. Uh, And that's, I think, really um, encouraging to see those findings coming through there. And also, I think during COVID, we saw that people do care fundamentally, not necessarily um, about the institutions that uphold these things, but about the the, the substantive rights which are at stake during a pandemic, the right to health, the right to financial security. These are things which we saw um, the government being put under a lot of pressure to do something to help people in relation to those fundamental rights, which are often outside of the human rights debate in this country. But when we actually look at what human rights people care about in the UK, particularly when they start talking about the NHS and the institutions we've got to protect them, those are the sorts of rights which they feel very strongly about.
3: Well, look, I agree with I agree with all of that. I mean, I I you know, for all of the doom and the gloom we're talking about, I I also remain an optimist. And, you know, not least because you look at issues that really engage young people, not least climate, which are all things that need to be addressed in part through law and people understanding how we work together under under a kind of a common framework. And also, I should say, I don't think we should overlook the positive fact for all that people might have toadied up within the Tory party to Johnson over the last few years, that they have got rid of a prime minister on the basis of integrity and lying. And because that matters, To the British public and the electorate and the the difference, the marked difference to the states where, you know, Republicans still fall for the Trump spell. So to me, even on that kind of personal level, there's room for optimism. Anyway, look, can I thank you all for this discussion? Let's wait to see uh, what the new government brings in. Maybe good, maybe bad.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: But we'll be on it. So thank you all very much indeed.
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Adam, and when we come back after the summer, Richard and Murray, you've got to find some positive things to talk about, get a bit of optimism of the world going.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.